Hello, everybody. Today we are with Salwa Rafi. Uh, Salwa is a global managing director at uh, Accenture Security. Hello, Salwa. How are you? Hello, hello, Gilad. Nice to be here with you and Simon. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time for us. Uh, really glad to have you. Salwa, I mean, you have such a rich uh, uh, career and, um, you know, so many things that you, you, you um, already done and looking forward, I bet you, you still have a long way to go. And uh, it's pretty fascinating to see the way that you did combining between technology and healthcare throughout your career. Has it been um, intended? Like, did you plan combining tech and healthcare? Well, uh, you know, so I am a biomedical engineer by training and, you know, my med biomedical engineering is a very vast field. Uh, some people focus on building and designing medical devices, or as we call it, the internet of medical things that connected medical devices, and that's their career. So it's mainly software and hardware for medical devices. And I have been through that as well. Uh, there is also a, a branch, which, which is the bioinformatics, which is designing and coding software for hospitals and the healthcare use. So it's a, it's a different one, some for bio, bio tissues, some for medical imaging, uh, how to automate and design expert systems to read our ultrasound and x-ray machines, for example, uh, the, the images and to, to reach some kind of diagnostic, in, uh, informed diagnostics based on uh, artificial intelligence or um, uh, augmented intelligence, as we say, uh, you know, and I have been through all of that. And this, this is greatly fulfilling, uh, Glad, because you have the healthcare uh, and my peers will have the healthcare experience uh, working in hospitals, working with payers, organizations, uh, working site. I had the, the, the privilege of working in many cancer institutes uh, working for VA hospitals uh, in the US. I have been in high tech companies like uh, Accenture and IBM. And I also worked for uh, industry. I, I worked for Siemens Healthineers for medical devices and uh, uh, radiology information center uh, systems. So, you know, combining all of that, uh, I, I only see it as a normal evolution to go to for the cybersecurity and finding ways to protect the medical data and uh, making sure our patients, and we are all patients, uh, are safe and secure. It's pretty fascinating to see the way that, um, uh, fascinating and a bit scary to see the way that um, uh, threats, cyber security threats to the healthcare um, uh, field has, has done throughout the years. I mean, like 10, 12, 20 years ago, um, you were still, you know, somewhere around this uh, industry, and you were very involved. Um, mm -hmm. And you could see the the involvement, like the way threats evolved over the years. Because I guess that we were not, we as healthcare, uh, we were not under such a huge threat back in the days like we are today, right? Like what that's, has that's been, correct. what what used to be the threats back then. It, you know, as you said, 10, 15 years ago, we were starting to hear about uh, financial uh, services like hacking of credit cards or hacking your social security numbers. And we would be like, wow, um, you know, getting to your bank accounts or, or uh, fraud with the payment or insurance. 
that was the extent of the threats at that time. You know, time has evolved and uh, very like fast forward, we see that healthcare is, has become one of the most vulnerable industries. And of course it is happening in all industries, uh, you know, as mentioned, the banking systems, uh, oil and gas, retail, airlines, even government, uh, you know, the, the uh, lots of government agencies have been hacked. But, you know, I think the hackers discovered very quickly that healthcare is an easy target. And frankly, and sadly, as you said, we are still an easy target. Uh, if you look at, uh, for, for many reasons, uh, you know, the legacy systems are here to stay for at least another decade. You know, it's uh, legacy systems, uh, our entire hospitals, whether in worldwide, still operate on very much legacy, whether it's radiology systems, lab uh, equipment, medical devices, um, the software behind electronic medical records still operate on Windows XP and Windows, you know, very, very easy and vulnerable systems. Uh, we, and also the healthcare system cannot employ enough of security uh, skills. They simply can't afford them. And there is a big shortage in security skills and talent everywhere. If we can see the shortage as, you know, Accenture security is really one of the largest, if not the largest security uh, solutions provider worldwide. If we see that shortage, uh, how would the hospitals, uh, public, publicly funded insurance companies and healthcare facilities would cope with that? So a, a huge threat and adding to that the enormous possibilities of what hackers can do with the medical data. Um, you know, as an example, electronic medical records have very rich information about not, not only PII and PHI, but clinical, medical, uh, financial data, uh, genomics data as well, very unique identifiers. Um, and if you put the whole thing into as, as a population health, then you, you it's a national security matter. You've got the secret code of a nation. So it, it is uh, an imminent, imminent threat for all of us. Yes, and, and if, we, if we look at the, the, the rise or the advances in precision medicine, it's only gonna get worse because those medical records are already worth more than banking records on, on the black market. Uh, so do you, given that it's, it's only gonna get worse as far as the threat landscape is concerned and, and the stakes are, are as well, um, uh, it's only gonna, the impact is only gonna have a, a even more of a weight. Do you think the responsibility of, you know, defending healthcare, uh, let's say the, the, quickest, the quickest road to a more secure uh, healthcare environment is to have governments assume more of the responsibility in defending their healthcare because after all their, their critical national infrastructure or is it on you know, putting more pressure on vendors of, of systems, hardware and software who are enabling the business of healthcare, uh, putting more pressure on them to have more robust, more secure uh, systems? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question, Simon. I think it is a mutual responsibility. Uh, I don't think we can have governments protecting the entire very complex healthcare system in any given country. They simply can't. Um, and leaving it all just to the, to the uh, CISOs at uh, these facilities also is very unfair. It's all mutual. Um, we feel, uh, even at Accenture Security, we feel the responsibility 
to provide solutions to educate everybody. We have a CSU Academy. We have uh, uh, we are launching lots of uh, learning uh, and training about the hygiene, the basic hygiene. Um, there is also the the Isaacs, which uh, are highly respectable. And uh, Glad and I uh, have been very much involved with the Health Isaac as an example. And there are other 20 plus Isaacs for each single industry. Uh, sharing threat uh, intelligence is key. Uh, working closely with each other, like clusters of hospitals, cluster of facilities, um, tertiary care hospitals, caring and and looking after the, the, the community, smaller community hospitals and insurance companies as well. You know, our health data, frankly, is everywhere. It is with the government, it is with the insurance companies, it is inside EMR, so the large players like the Epics and the Cerners, each one has a responsibility to boost their system with the security measures. Uh, and technology companies uh, alike, uh, they have a responsibility. So it is, it, it, it takes, it will take a village. It will get worse before it gets better. Frankly, it's a race. Uh, it's a race and we are racing against very sophisticated, well-funded hackers and very smart hackers too. Um, they are looking for vulnerabilities in every single system uh, and even on the dark web there is you know, published several hundreds of thousands of pages uh, advertising the vulnerabilities of each single operating system, EMR system, each single medical device, believe it or not, has a record there to show that this is um, an X-ray machine or, or an insulin uh, pump, and this is the vulnerabilities, this is how you can hack them uh, as, as a bad actor. And also we can see that you know, the, the, the package ransomware as a service, uh, this kind of uh, packaged uh, bundle that you can buy, e each of us can, can afford to buy this bundle and use it to hack any hospital, any uh, medical or healthcare facility. So it's just uh, the attack surface has become extremely large and that explains why the exponential rise uh, in attacks against healthcare. You know, Sawa, I've been speaking with a friend of mine who's um, in the Academy for Bioinformatics, and he told me, I never told so many people would ask me about, about what I, what, my work, my academy career, and so on, because ever since the pandemic started, people, you know, people started um, uh, knowing so much about uh, DNA, RNA, and so on. It's no longer, um, you know, this foreign language for people. They know so much about it and i thought and and i told him yeah we could see the same in the you know healthcare pharma war because in the cybersecurity we were never that much uh, targeted as much as we are ever since the start of the, the pandemic because the names of the uh, companies are now uh, big in the headlines and the data became so much precious um and, and when i think about it we also spoke about like what it used to be 10, 20 years ago, it sounds so hard to me to even uh, uh, address some of the threats nowadays to the management and uh, uh, kind of uh, introduce, reflect uh, how vulnerable things are and so on. And, um, you know, looking at your current uh, position, I mean, I, I guess it used to be and still a major part of what you do, right? Like reflecting the threat. Uh, 
So maybe if you can like brief us on how it's done actually and what are the challenges there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gilad, you're right, you know, the, the, especially with the very uh, valuable data from coming from pharma, you know, everybody's talking about the vaccine and how it was a magical um, speed that how we got these vaccines happening in, in a few months only. Uh, but this, this really, people don't know that this has been the result of long research that has been kept there and the, the emergency need or nature of, of the COVID pandemic has just accelerated everything. Um, you know, intellectual property that we see in, in large pharma companies have been not just millions, but billion dollar worth of data. And we're talking about the, the IP and whether we, we should socialize it. And uh, I know that we are trying to break down the barriers and produce generics of the vaccine. Uh, so that everybody will have access to that. Um, you know, it starts with a very simple hygiene, uh, the cyber hygiene, which is frankly 70 to 80% of the cyber attacks that I see with my clients, they come through basic phishing campaigns uh, that, you know, the, the, that's the basic thing. And, and if we continue the training of cyber hygiene for the end users, uh, for the entire user community, uh, that would, would eliminate at least the basic kind of uh, attacks. Of course, there are other very sophisticated ones with the brute force and the ransomware uh, attacks and access to privileged um, credentials. Um, sometimes it, it is, yeah, as we all say, it's not really uh, an if, it's a when. The, the most important thing, in my opinion, frankly, is each facility each organization should have a crisis management solution, should have a plan of when it happens, what then? Do I have access to the data? Uh, is the backup data gonna be also encrypted and I will not have access to it? What's the disaster recovery uh, options that I have? Uh, what should I do from, from, from across the entire organization from the C-level all the way to the end users? Uh, the marketing, legal, um, executives, uh, can I, the, the question is, when can, we, can I go back to business? So you will be back to business, whether it is, if you are, you're organized, you have access to your data, you can go back to business in a few days. If you really can, don't have the crisis management and the incident response plan, you can be either going out of business or it will take you six months with the loss of revenue, loss of patience, loss of branding and everything else. You know, I think you've heard of, uh, of what happened in a national, large national healthcare system uh, that happened maybe uh, four to six months ago. And when that happens, this is really a, a, an issue of the national security because the entire database of the country, the medical database ha have been stolen and what we have seen here is even though the hackers, so they decided not to pay the ransom, and even when the hacker said, okay, here is that decryption key for your system, even having the decryption key didn't help much. Uh, uh, the, the national system struggled and struggled, and it took a few months to partially get back to business. So it is really complex. We need to think and have and work on an incident response and a crisis management plan. 
a lot of the attacks, most of the attacks actually are very, very avoidable. They're, they're low hanging fruits, just like in any pr profession, you know, in, in the hacking profession, there are lots of untalented people who just tried the same thing over and over again, hoping someone didn't get the basics right. And, and most of these issues are usually, you know, remediated or, or fixed by, you know, having a little bit more resources, uh, whether that's having an extra body who can take time and do proper vulnerability management or prioritization or, or, or just the, the right tools to do this at scale. It seems these issues are now mainstream. I mean, I, I have conversations with people who've never heard of cybersecurity, don't know what a CISO is, and they, they know about ransomware. They know about the impact. They know how hurtful it is to all stakeholders. Um, I think business executives with no prior background in engineering also understand the value of data. I mean, they're betting the future of their business on it. I think there was a study uh, um, not so long ago asking CEOs, would they rather lose half their revenue or half their data? They all said half their revenue. So <laughs> clearly businesses are working at scale through digital means and, and yet, yet it's underfunded, underprioritized. Uh, lots of boards don't have anyone talking about digital risk. Um, it is underestimated because it's underreported for the most part. You know, people want data on successful attacks, but well, <laughs> a lot of those are just not known. But what we're never talking about is the loss of trust. And you mentioned vaccines, and that's actually a very good point. Things happened at scale because there were systems in place, there were parties trusting each other to share information, work at scale. And I feel like our whole economy is trust-based and our whole economy is digital. And whenever professionals or consumers who have no idea what goes on on the back end lose trust in the systems, we lose a lot of GDP points. That is my belief that we're losing trillions every year to distrust. Uh, and, and, and that happens within closed ecosystem, people working with third parties who won't collaborate as fast as they used to. Uh, clients fearing, you know, the vendors and, 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 and um, you know, companies they work with. So how, how do we shift the conversation and explain to people in very concrete economic terms, how expensive this trust in the digital landscape uh, uh, is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you're talking about a very important topic, um, Simon. You know, the whole economy, we've seen how connected we are. You know, globalization is, is here to stay. There is uh, nothing gonna be a winning community or a winning country over the others. Uh, you've seen, you mentioned the third party uh, as well. You know, look, look at what's happening with the supply chain. It's amazing that because of a shortage in, in a certain country or a few countries, now we can't get new cars, we can't get new medical devices, we can't get uh, some basic food transported into uh, some cities. Um, and it's all very well in interconnected. Um, trust is a major factor and the loss of a reputation. For example, we see the movement of the anti-vaxxers who are really the whole thing is a loss of trust. They don't wanna get vaccinated because they don't believe uh, what even with the medical research, even in scientific papers, they just don't, they choose not to believe. Um, so it is, it is costing our global economy massive, massive amount. And if we really don't pay attention to that, uh, everything will will kind of be in a in a very much dangerous cascade. 
um, we are in a race, uh, not just to, to have our communities viable, to have the basic services, which is, you know, the transportation of food, the transportation of care. Uh, healthcare is a basic thing, the, the oil and gas, heating um, to everybody. Uh, but we're, when we're looking at the climate change uh, as well, you know, we are all, we should know that we are all here together uh, because, you know, there are no jobs, there are no ransomware, there are no economy in a dead planet. Uh, so it, it's really, uh, I see that the whole thing is much uh, connected and it is up to all of us. It's really a mutual responsibility that we seek the truth and we inform uh, people around us, people who work with us and for us and, and, and uh, in our communities, in our cities, when we travel, when we talk, we seek the truth. I think that's the only way people will gain trust, will unite against and sharing and the collaboration into uh, a common interest is, is key. I think um, a key thing that I learned from uh, as a basic project or program management is the sense of ownership. If every one of us has the sense of ownership in these problems, we will do our part and we will inform uh, you know, uh, our connected communities with what we know and we will lead by example. This is what people need to, to see, oh, they are doing that, then it, it must mean something to them not just uh, advertising in, in newspapers or headline news. To be honest, Sawa, I couldn't agree more. I really shared these uh, views with you and, you know, taking it to, to practice, I think that what, uh, for example, the, um, the ISACs are doing is um, mostly about building relationships, building, uh, as Simon mentioned, building trust, um, and um, using transparency and uh, partnership to uh, deliver valuable information and experience to each other. And uh, sometimes I think that if you if we take the ISACs um, uh, model to the you know to the outside world, uh, that could help because yeah. always when I, I I think that when you're building like a community sense of community. It, um, it gets people you know, highly engaged. They are willing to ask questions and actually discuss and uh, get more educated about stuff that they were not um, before that. And um, you know, speaking of uh, the, the anti-vaccine um, uh, organizations or individuals, groups, um, and this is a very uh, common uh, you know, office kitchen talk nowadays uh, for those that go to the office. Uh, I mean, it, it's also about, you know, it's how to judge like governments, how they act against it and what, how they cope with it. But most times when, when you see like um, uh, transparency and maybe um, campaigns that, you know, share more information or shed light on, on reality and so on, if it's done correctly, then you get a bit more uh, engagement than, than you used to. So maybe, you know, maybe we can take the Isaacs model out to the I, outside world. I love the idea. I think the Isaacs model is fantastic. And again, they really embody the meaning of sharing, collaboration, trust, uh, you know, and, and that's why we have these summits and the meetings, because when I see you and I talk with you, we have so many things in common. 
uh, we start to become friends. We, we start to see the commonality and just break, it breaks down all the barriers. I trust you and I wanna share with you. So if I see a threat coming, you'll be the first to on my email list to say, hey, Gila, this is what I'm seeing. What can we do? And imagine the power in volume, imagine the power in, uh, in solidarity. Uh, I think we can beat it. Um, we just, uh, as, as uh, you and Simon said, we just need to find the common thread for all of us and, and forge this trust and confidence that what we are doing has a value. It's not meaningless. It's not for personal gain. Uh, it really has a value and the value is, is reflected on all of us, not just big corporations, not just big governments. Um, and that's why I really like the idea of all the governments now with a surplus of vaccines, as an example, you're giving away all of the vaccines to other countries. And frankly, it, it should happen even faster. Everybody should have access to these vaccines. And these vaccines, we have been having vaccines forever, like the polio, the, like the uh, you know, um, chicken pox. Um, and we have seen the, from the beginning of last century, the correlation of the vaccinated communities against, for example, polio and the eradication uh, efforts that uh, that has been very productive in. So there is a big value in that. I think everybody is trying, but uh, having some common sense. And, and frankly, I like the, the idea of socialized medicine. I like the fact that everybody should have access to healthcare, period. It's, it's really not a privilege. Uh, it is a right for all of us, like the right to, to breathe oxygen, the right for education for our kids, the right for, for healthcare. Uh, so access is very important. And this is how um, we build our healthy communities. Uh, I remember there was a very nice economic study in one of the countries that correlated the having access to uh, dental care for children. And how that when you trace, if you allow kids to have access, regular access to dentists with healthy teeth, how that reflects when they are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and how that reflects in, in real numbers on the economy, on the GDP. Um, you know, take that and extrapolate to any disease. The, the burden of diseases is so huge. Uh, it's a big factor for any government and budget. If we pay attention to that from the very beginning, we will save not trillions of money that we can avail for, for everything else, for innovation to make life easier for everybody. Healthy people, healthy economy. Exactly. That's it. That's <laughs> it. More. There are lots of uh, unsuspected uh, virtuous circle that we uh, circle that we, we sometimes ignore. If, if you don't mind, I wanted to take take the subject back to uh, to information sharing because that's yep. that's how you two know each other. And I, yep. I myself work, worked for, for an ISAC, or the FS ISAC. So I greatly value information sharing how it's done and the people involved it's very selfless and i think it helps a lot of people we could have another debate as to what's most valuable being shared and and you know some things are really hard to share actually beyond technical information but uh there are a few people i could ask that question too so i'm going to take this opportunity <laughs> uh, how do you reconcile those two concepts of you know, there's a lot of, of, of value uh, in sharing we're all in this together uh, it's a collective effort with positioning cybersecurity as a competitive advantage mm -hmm. because 
if I'm a commodity trader and, and I know something is happening in a part of the world that's going to impact the price of a certain commodity and my competitor doesn't know, that's a huge business boost over him. And at the end of the day, we're sharing you know, a, a market. I do think that as far as cyber defense is concerned, it's, you know, we're all in this together, but at the same time, I recognize there is an advantage there. And that's what I'm, I'm, I'm sort of uh, uh, using as an argument for people to invest more in cybersecurity. So how do you reconcile those two concepts, if, if at all they need to be reconciled? Right, right. No, I'm all for um, healthy competition and, and constructive competitiveness. I would love uh, to see that we are competing to get better tools, to give better solutions, faster results. This would be a healthy competition. Um, and I see that happening in, in the large you know, tech companies. They're like, hey, we have these tools or we have developed this comprehensive solution that would benefit our clients. This is a good competition because the clients and the healthcare organizations, you know, talking about the industry, at the end of the day, they will look into that. They have the ability to evaluate what best fit for their organizations. And uh, you know, it gives them free, uh, a degree of freedom in, in the choice and the selection. This is great competitiveness. Um, I think uh, what you mean is, is harmful competition that we are competing or monopolizing the pricing of certain tools or solutions, and this is not good. You know, uh, if we all lead by example and all the companies would share what happens with them as an experience and then uh, open it up, really it's a supply and demand. It is really for the best solution to prevail uh, and not, you know, the best solution or the most complicated or complex one is not really the best for every single body. You know, there are smaller hospitals that can get, get by, by, as you said, simpler tools that they can protect themselves with that and grow with it. Um, very sophisticated healthcare systems, maybe they need more complex solutions. So each one is on a different point on the maturity scale. Um, and we can all strive to make it better, to make it faster uh, for each of our industries and collaboration, collaboration. We, uh, I, I don't see a contradiction at all between uh, this, uh, this competitiveness and striving for, for the best and really accelerating the innovation cycle with um, the, the cybersecurity and how we can um, you know, for, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's really how to faster protect uh, our clients, protect our uh, data, uh, and the faster, uh, the better for each one of us. So, Sal, I think that one thing that I, I thought about earlier when, when I heard about, you know, some of your background and, and also read about it a little is to understand also the way that you do, um, that you did, sorry, academically, to get where you are and whether you kind of used it um, uh, and, and, you know, uh, it gave you like an advantage in, in the way that, uh, in a sense that um, you, you knew more about the things that you're doing from the beginning, like from an academic point of view, would you also recommend others that are just, you know, beginning their ways in uh, IT security or, you know, want to go this path and so on? To, to study something specific, to take specific courses and so on. Um, how do you see that nowadays? You know, nowadays there are so many paths to success. There is no one way that will lead to everybody. And uh, 
uh, every one of us is so talented in a special way. Uh, some people don't even need a high school degree to excel and do what they love. Um, so I see many paths and I think I would encourage people to do what they like and what they feel they are good at. Uh, you know, I, I was part of these communities like Girls Who Code, for example, uh, teaching um, girls and, or a STEM education. Uh, I'm very much pro STEM education for everybody, but especially for girls because they seem to be in a complete disadvantage in many other communities. So I would promote for that because it is the critical thinking that we would like to create within our children. Uh, and the generations, and it doesn't need much education to do that, but you need to focus on the critical thinking, on, on the strive to learn, the love to learn. Uh, let's create this, this one in, in, for our children as well, for the new generations, for the uh, young uh, and the youth who are maybe in high schools or colleges, uh, pursue what you love and continue to do that. Uh, and even if you, you have one degree and you think, oh my God, I wanna try something else, go for it, go for it. There is nothing and no barriers that should uh, ever stop in your way to learn more with or without degrees. Uh, you know, I had the classical way of being a strong uh, STEM. I went into engineering from the very beginning, undergrad and graduate degrees, um, but, I think more people are even much more talented than that. And they can reach the same spot by experiences, by being engaged in the fields, by, um, um, you know, the love to read and to write and to learn. And this is really what we, what we see, uh, what I think is key for everybody. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think we're getting there. And I, I'm wondering if there won't be actually an imbalance in the opposite direction in a few years, because there are parts of the world already where, you know, when I interact with the sector, you meet way more women than men now, a younger generation, incredibly talented. Uh, they, yeah. never, uh, they, they never wondered if uh, they were in the right place. They never questioned it, they just took their space and they're, they're, they're running the sector. I mean, I, I see that a lot in the Middle East, actually. It's very, very impressive. Um, I agree. I see more, lots of women going for that and uh, they are not paying attention to the stereotypical of, uh, you know, oh. the, the girl should do that and the boy should do that. And it's really, uh, uh, yeah, it's very inspiring to see. I'm not so worried about positioning STEM and helping young women or young people in general just, just look forward to a career in cybersecurity. I think it's, it's, there are very practical, very quantifiable means to do that. Very clear metrics as to whether a policy works or not towards that goal. Where I'm a little more concerned is I wouldn't want to be a teenager in 2021. I wouldn't want to be 10, 11 and have a smartphone in my pocket and be exposed to the dangers of, of the internet. And I wonder if we do enough there not to change the internet and all the bad things that come with it, but to educate. There is the information you get firsthand in real life. There is you know, a comment someone might make to you in your face. And then there is what people might say at scale on the internet and educating people in this new yeah, digital landscape that's unfortunately adversely impacting lots of lives. Do you think parents should be more educated to then educate them within you know families or do you think we should have massive campaigns or or have teachers trained i mean it's a very complex issue and one where it's hard to measure success and yet yeah. i feel it's 
they're not prepared for yeah. you know what a troll farm can do on your perception of reality yeah you know i sometimes you, uh, you you think that privacy is gone or long gone with everybody having a smartphone and a tracking device and uh, somebody who's listening to you nonstop 24 7 right it's just um too fast too soon and I see, you know, even with my friends and their babies, they are talking to Alexa all the time. I'm like, oh, uh, you know, it's just, and they're like, Alexa, we want to do that. And they are really still toddlers. It, it's, uh, it's dangerous. We have to be careful as, you know, parents, as teachers, as professionals, we just need to be careful with that because as you said, children now have, um, even though they can't imagine our lives before, uh, you know, growing up, I didn't have access. I didn't have smartphones were not invented, uh, had not been invented yet. And they can't imagine that. I think we still did the simple things too fast for them. The kids really, kids grow too fast with e each one of them with access to a smartphone. So I hope that this slows down and it is really the role of the parents. Uh, number one, the parents. Just be careful. It's a very unknown and big and disguised and encrypted world out there. Uh, and it's they have to be vigilant of allowing this access uh, at the early age. And even as we grow, we are, we are, we are all still vulnerable to, to all of these, you know, as we are vulnerable to anything. If uh, the largest and sophisticated federal government agencies have been vulnerable to cyber attacks, each one of us is. So just stay vigilant. And this, this is my advice to all the parents and the teachers and the communities. Definitely. It was very interesting, Sawa. Thank you so much for, for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I love the discussion and uh, let's do more of that. I definitely follow you on all of your social media and uh, thank you for the opportunity to chat. <laughs>